Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. It was late afternoon in the spring of 1975. 29-year-old Welsh drug smuggler Howard Marks was listening to a record in an apartment that was not his. All of Howard's living arrangements were borrowed these days. He was a fugitive on the run. Someone buzzed the apartment intercom. Howard looked out the window. Four stories down, he saw four large men in overcoats waiting on the sidewalk. Howard's hair stood on end. This wasn't good. Thinking fast, Howard unlocked the front door. If he let the men in, they would get into the elevator and head up to the penthouse. That would give Howard a chance to disappear down the stairs. It was risky, but it was his best shot. Howard put on a pair of glasses to disguise his face and descended hopping the stairs two steps at a time. But when he arrived at the exit, the men were still there. Howard was terrified, but he had no choice. With all the nonchalance he could muster, he strolled past them, right out the door. One of them took his photograph. Another shook his head. That's not him. Howard hopped into a cab. The men weren't the law, but they were almost as bad. They were the press. Another safe house was blown, and he was running out of places to hide. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld and why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app tap browse and type kingpins in the search bar at parcast we're grateful for you our listeners you allow us to do what we love 
Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This is our second episode on Welsh folk hero and legendary cannabis smuggler, Howard Marks. Last week, we explored Howard's rise from disillusioned academic to international cannabis trafficker. This week, we'll see how Howard's disregard for the justice system jettisoned him to folk hero status, but ultimately led to his downfall. In late 1973, 28-year-old Howard Marks found himself sitting in an Amsterdam jail cell. He had a small piece of hash on his person, so Dutch authorities charged him with possession. But the charge was just a pretext for his extradition back to England. Once in England, he was charged under the Misuse of Drugs Act with assisting in the United Kingdom in the commission of a United States drug offense. Howard's charge stemmed from the $5 million worth of hashish the Las Vegas DEA discovered stuffed inside a shipment of speakers a few months earlier. Even though the speakers were found in Las Vegas, the Misuse of Drugs Act meant Howard could still be charged in the UK. He was facing at least three years in prison, likely more. But Howard had no intention of serving time. As was usually the case, his good luck panned out for him. After three weeks in a British jail, Her Majesty's Justice made a massive error in judgment and determined that Howard Marks was not a flight risk. He was released on a 50,000-pound bail and promptly disappeared. He had earned his freedom, but he was now a fugitive. Howard's trial began on May 1st, 1974, and he wasn't there for it. His co-defendants, who'd personally shipped and received the stash, pleaded guilty and were sentenced to between six months and four years in prison. Howard bided his time, living with a friend only known as Di on the East End of London. Meanwhile, Ernie Combs, Howard's California partner in the busted Las Vegas shipment, was bankrolling Howard's lifestyle out of gratitude. Howard could have maintained his freedom by turning state's witness and giving Ernie up. Instead, he protected his friend and went on the lam. For Howard, building trust was worth almost any risk. British authorities were actively searching for Howard, so he altered his appearance by growing a beard and cutting his hair. He started having Di and his friends call him Albie, an alias Howard selected because it was an anagram of the word bail. Howard also got fitted with a pair of glasses to alter his appearance. Being a man of habitual vices, Howard smoked several joints before visiting the doctor. Howard's prescription glasses made his vision very blurry when he was sober, but when he was stoned, his vision was crystal clear. Howard wasn't only hiding from law enforcement. The British press had gotten wind of his escape and were publishing sensational stories throughout the spring of 1974. The Daily Mirror covered their front page with the headline, Where is Mr. Marks? 
The article claimed that Howard was an agent with the British intelligence agency MI6. According to Howard, an old friend from Oxford named Hamilton Macmillan actually had approached him about working with MI6 in late 1972. But none of their half-cocked operations ever amounted to anything. After the Las Vegas bust, Hamilton had unceremoniously cut ties with Howard, claiming that MI6 could no longer affiliate with criminals. Howard was tickled that the press had somehow latched onto this detail and blown it far out of proportion. It got public opinion on his side, and it embarrassed MI6. Howard always took pleasure in making the authorities look bad. After a few months, Howard's friend Di was tired of the constant stress of living with a fugitive. So, in the summer of 1974, Howard borrowed Di's passport and traveled to Genova, Italy, where he had stashed an old six-person Winnebago. For the next couple months, Howard bummed around Italian campsites, picking up hitchhikers. He called this his period of debauched promiscuity. But in October 1974, the British press found Howard. Worried that the authorities would soon bear down on him as well, Howard abandoned the Winnebago in Italy and used Dye's passport to fly back to Britain. It was a risk to return to the place where authorities were looking for him, but at least in his homeland, Howard had allies and knew the legal system. On his flight back, Howard was surrounded by passengers reading about his Italian exploits in the Daily Mirror under the headline, He's Alive. To deal with his nerves, Howard got supremely drunk. By the time they landed, he was giggling hysterically. None of it seemed real. Howard found his next crash pad with 19-year-old Judy Lane. Judy was the sister to Patrick Lane, Howard's crooked accountant. Howard had first met Judy in 1971 and was pleased to find that she had only grown more beautiful. They struck up a romance. Judy adopted Howard's fugitive lifestyle as her own. When Howard needed a new identity, they had a favorite scam they'd run together. While at a pub, Judy would sit alone dressed as a sexy medium while Howard posted up at another table nearby. Inevitably, a man about Howard's age would approach Judy and she would offer to tell him his future. Of course, she would need some information first, like his birthday, his mother's maiden name, etc. Howard would record the information, then use it to collect a copy of the target's birth certificates. With the birth certificates, he could order a copy of the victim's passports and then forge them with his own photograph. It worked perfectly. During the summer of 1975, Howard was back at work. He oversaw the delivery of 500 kilos of Nepalese hashish into New York. Once again flush with cash, Howard and Judy spent the next few years on the run. They lived as wealthy jet-setters all over Europe and the United States. In early 1977, 31-year-old Howard and 22-year-old Judy were having a sumptuous breakfast near Lake Lugano on the Italian-Swiss border. Judy broke the news. She was pregnant. 
The couple was overjoyed, but Howard was hiding some anxiety. He knew it wouldn't be easy to have a family on the lam. They wanted to get married, but Judy refused to marry Howard under a false name. As it was, when their daughter Amber was born in October 1977, the father listed on the birth certificate was Albert Waylon Jennings. Albert was a work of fiction. He was a singer in Laughing Grass, the imaginary rock group Howard assembled back in 1973 as a front for his first U.S. hash shipment. Howard's criminal and fugitive lifestyle had officially bled into his family life. However, if he wanted to stay out of prison, he couldn't leave his business behind. He did the only thing that could continue bankrolling the expensive lifestyle of a fugitive, he kept smuggling. And he kept smuggling where he was most familiar, in the UK. Unfortunately, the UK was also the most dangerous place for him to be. His schemes came to a peak in December 1979, when he was 34 years old. 15 tons of Colombian marijuana arrived in Ireland on a retrofitted fishing vessel. The dope was split evenly, five tons stored in three safe houses. One was on the Scottish island of Carrara, one in a residence in Essex, and one in a warehouse used to breed and train falcons in the British countryside. It was an absurdly enormous haul. By Howard's estimation, it was the largest amount of cannabis ever smuggled into Europe. Quote, enough for every inhabitant of the British Isles to get simultaneously stoned. Quickly, it became clear the score was too big. The British market was saturated and the price of dope dropped over 16% per pound. Even with the price cut, the marijuana was not selling as quickly as Howard or his partners in the Florida Mafia would have liked. In May 1980, Howard only paid his American suppliers about $2 million, far less than they anticipated. The Florida Mafia smelled a ripoff. They insisted on sending representatives to England to make sure Howard's inventory of the remaining product was accurate. Howard was against it. He knew Her Majesty's Customs was already on high alert. Bringing Americans into the mix would only make him more vulnerable. Howard was right. While the Americans investigated Howard's operation, they unknowingly came into contact with an undercover British agent and led the officers back to a stash house. When the rest of Howard's team realized the stash house's location was blown, they dumped a few tons of marijuana in the ocean. Over the next few weeks, massive bales of marijuana washed up all over the Scottish coast. It was smoked, eaten by domestic and wild animals, and eventually turned over to the police. Howard knew his phones were tapped, and he had a strong sense he was being followed. His nerves grew more frayed with each passing day. It was only a matter of time before he was arrested. A few weeks after his stash house was busted, Howard was at a hotel bar in Lavenham, England, about 75 miles from London. He'd been moving his family around in an effort to stay ahead of law enforcement, but he was still extremely on edge. As Judy was putting Amber to bed in the hotel room upstairs, Howard ordered a dry sherry. 
two men sat down next to him. Suddenly, one of them grabbed Howard's wrist, asking to see his watch, and clicked Howard into a pair of handcuffs. Almost seven years after he'd watched his stash get taken in Las Vegas, Howard was finally going to face a jury. Sitting in his jail cell, Howard racked his brain to find a way to get out. There was a lot of evidence against him. Nothing he could do about that. But perhaps he could invalidate it. During all those lonely hours in the cell, Howard turned it over and over in his mind until he landed on it. He would do his best to explain his actions to the court, but he wouldn't be able to go into too much detail because as had been published in the media, Howard was an MI6 agent. Up next, Howard tries to pull off his most ambitious scheme yet. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, back to the story. In May 1980, after nearly seven years on the run, 34-year-old Howard Marks was arrested for a second time. He was facing a charge stemming from hashish smuggled into Las Vegas in 1973. Now, Howard was also facing additional charges related to the 15 tons of Colombian marijuana he'd smuggled into the UK in December 1979, and the 40-odd aliases and false IDs he'd created since 1973. But Howard had a plan. He was going to tell the court he was an MI6 agent. There were plenty of corroborating details in the British press, and he could certainly conjure up other MI6 agents who would be able to speak in limited terms on his behalf. Howard's best source of evidence came from existing court records. Only a few weeks earlier, unhinged Irishman James McCann's trial began in Ireland. If you recall from our previous episode, Howard had worked with McCann throughout the early 70s, smuggling cannabis through the Shannon Airport. About a year earlier, McCann had been busted with a shipment of hashish. Although Howard had not taken part in that scheme, he was a big part of McCann's defense. McCann played into existing political tension between Ireland and Britain, claiming that Howard was an MI6 agent who had been poisoning Ireland's youth with marijuana. McCann hadn't been working with Howard to smuggle hashish, he'd been working with the Irish Republican Army to track down and eliminate Howard. Howard was grateful, 
McCann had done him the immense courtesy of naming him as an MI6 agent, which allowed Howard to defend himself with basically the same story, but in reverse. He said MI6 had recruited him to entrap known IRA weapons dealer James McCann, but his operation had been blown by the intrusion of Her Majesty's Customs in 1973. From there, Howard claimed MI6 set him up with the Mexican Secret Service to continue tracking McCann and eventually to infiltrate the Colombian drug hierarchy. Of course, he had to engage in drug smuggling and distribution activity. It was part of his work undercover. Howard convinced 65-year-old British barrister Lord Hutchinson of this story, and thanks to his new counsel, he enjoyed a cushy jail sentence leading up to his trial. In July of 1980, Howard was allowed out of jail in the company of two guards in order to marry Judy under his own name. Judy was five months pregnant with their second child. But even Howard's apparent goodwill with the court couldn't speed up the proceedings. He waited in jail for over a year, missing the birth of his and Judy's second daughter, Francesca. Finally, on September 28, 1981, 15 months after his arrest, Howard's trial began. He was facing 18 years in prison. Over six weeks, the Crown presented their case. They had mountains of evidence and several witnesses to show that Howard was at the center of an international drug smuggling conspiracy. But the prosecutor made a key mistake. When he questioned Howard, the prosecutor agreed that Howard was an agent with the MI6. Things went downhill for Her Majesty's justice from there. What really convinced the jury was a spy-left-out-in-the-cold narrative concocted by Howard's lawyer, Lord Hutchinson. British intelligence had been known to prioritize their operations and secrets over individual agents, opting to leave the spy in the cold rather than support them. Howard's service for his country couldn't be corroborated without exposing classified information. It was a gross injustice that Howard's sacrifice was repaid with prosecution by the very country he served. It worked. The jury found Howard not guilty. Howard wrote, I don't think for one minute the jury believed the defenses presented to them. They just didn't want us nice guys to spend countless years in prison for transporting beneficial herbs from one part of the world to another. On May 6, 1982, Howard walked out of jail free and clear at age 36. Immediately, he instructed his lawyer to sue Her Majesty's Customs and Excise in an effort to retrieve the 30,000 pounds they were holding as evidence. His lawyer felt it was a little cocky to take the crown to court again when Howard was so lucky to have been acquitted. But Howard insisted that not suing was basically an admission of guilt. An innocent person would, of course, insist on the return of their money, and Howard had just been proven innocent. Howard's lawyer agreed to move forward with the lawsuit, and in the autumn of 1982, Howard won the money back. But there was a catch. Howard had not paid taxes in over nine years, and even though he had been exonerated of any cannabis-dealing charges, 
The Inland Revenue Special Office still asserted Howard owed them 1.8 million pounds. So Howard couldn't touch the 30,000 pounds Her Majesty's Customs was holding until the Inland Revenue Special Office had their way with it. Howard still considered the battle a victory. He took pleasure in mocking Britain's justice system. However, his antics resulted in permanent hostility from law enforcement in the UK and even in the US. The acquittal had undermined the 1973 Las Vegas bust, and the DEA was not going to take that lying down. For the rest of Howard's life, his movements and finances would be carefully watched. At first, that didn't seem like too much of a problem. Howard promised Judy that he would go straight. And for a few months, he gave the square life an honest try. He tried to go legitimate by starting a wine business called Drinkenbridge. After so many years of smuggling by the seat of his pants, running a legitimate business seemed surreal, almost comical to him. But he just wasn't turned on by the straight life. As he recalls, quote, none of this was exciting and none of it was making any real money. He knew that the next chance he got, he'd return to smuggling. It was impossible to do business from the UK. Law enforcement and the Inland Revenue Special Office were too hip to Howard's methods. A business partner suggested that Howard consider non-residency. As long as he lived outside the UK, none of his income, ill-gotten or not, would be under the purview of the IRSO. Howard and his family didn't want to settle too far from the UK, and they wanted to be warm. So in 1984, they moved into a villa in Mallorca, Spain. The villa and garden were surrounded by high walls, and the only entrance was through an iron gate controlled on the inside. It was located at the dead end of a narrow street. There was no way to surveil it without being detected. It was like a fortress. But such precautions couldn't save Howard from enemies within. Not long after moving to Spain, he met the man who would lead to his downfall. In April 1985, at age 39, Howard met Lord Antony Patrick Andrew Cairn Berkeley Moynihan, the third Baron Moynihan. He told Howard to call him Tony. Tony lived in a mansion in Manila, the capital city of the Philippines. He was a disgraced member of the British Parliament on a self-imposed exile from the UK, avoiding an outstanding fraud charge. Now he ran several businesses and owned property in Manila, including a brothel. Over the course of 1985, Howard had visited Tony several times in Manila and even brought his family with him. At first, Howard was just pleased to have another British expat to spend time with, but Howard quickly identified a business opportunity. In November of 1985, Howard, Tony, and a few of Howard's cronies polished off a luxuriously languid dinner with a few joints. Howard complained about the poor quality of the local marijuana, and somehow the conversation turned around to the possibility of growing superior strains of weed on the Filipino islands. Surely Tony had contacts that could protect such an operation. 
Tony's instinct was to clutch his pearls at such an outlandish proposal. But Howard knew exactly what would get Tony on board. He told him, money's no problem, Tony. 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollars. There are millions of dollars available. Tony changed his tune. He'd get involved in any business proposition that put 50 million on the table. A deal was quickly struck. But Howard didn't know the law was close behind. While he and the family enjoyed Christmas 1985 in London, the Spanish police installed a wiretap on his home phone in Mallorca, and they recruited help from the DEA. The DEA sent Special Agent Craig Lovato, a man known for his intense commitment to his profession. On Lovato's first day in Spain in January 1986, his supervisor offered to tour him around the city. Lovato opted to listen to Howard's phone calls for 13 straight hours instead. When he finally came up for air, he reported that the tapes were a gold mine. On January 30th, 1986, Lovato overheard that Howard was going to the local airport to meet an incoming flight from London. Lovato couldn't resist the opportunity to finally set eyes on his target. Lovato and two local Spaniards posed as departing tourists. It was the early evening, so the local airport wasn't busy. He caught a glimpse of the man he'd been listening to for almost a month. Howard was easy to spot, loitering around the food court with his two daughters, eight-year-old Amber and five-year-old Francesca. To Lovato, he looked surprisingly normal, even rumpled for a multimillionaire. Lovato raised the camera to his eye and aimed the lens at the Spaniards posing under the departures sign. But then he refocused over their shoulder on Howard. Lovato captured his first image of a man he would spend the next two years stalking. From 1986 through 1988, Howard felt as though he could sense Lovato's presence, even though he never saw him. But Howard knew how to protect himself. He always spoke in code on the phone, always kept a physical distance between himself and the drugs. And when handling money, he always traveled to countries where surveillance was logistically difficult. But Lovato was patient. He knew that sooner or later, Howard would make a mistake. Actually, he had already made an error, trusting Tony Moynihan. Next, Howard suffers a betrayal. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Now, back to the story. Howard Marks's vision of growing marijuana in the Philippines was becoming a reality. In December of 1986, he gave Tony Monihan $50,000 to secure real estate. 
By the next February, Tony and Howard were flying in a chartered plane to the Filipino island of Fuga. The partners thought everything was moving forward smoothly. Until Tony was summoned to meet with the DEA in May 1987. At first, Tony played coy. He correctly suspected that the DEA couldn't prosecute him, he'd committed no crimes in America, and had nothing to do with Howard's plans to smuggle dope into the States. But the DEA could offer Tony something he desperately wanted, to return to Britain a free man. It was a delicate agreement. British law enforcement didn't make deals with criminals, and the DEA couldn't make promises on their behalf but British authorities were desperate to see Howard behind bars. Once Tony realized the DEA was offering what he wanted most, he quickly agreed to help with Howard's prosecution. In September 1987, Tony was staying in Palma, Spain as Howard's guest. The plan was simple. When he got dressed in the morning, he would slide a tiny recorder into his breast pocket. He was so nervous that he wrote out a list of topics Lovato wanted him to ask Howard about. For a week, Tony got Howard to discuss his past smuggling deals, his money laundering, how his brother-in-law Patrick Lane laundered money for him, and a recent cannabis bust in Vancouver. It was more than Lovato had expected. And things got even better when Howard arranged a meeting between Tony and Howard's brother-in-law, Patrick Lane. Tony got Patrick to discuss the details of his money laundering operation, all on tape. Lovato finally had everything he needed to extradite Howard and put him away on a racketeering charge under the RICO Act. Lovato was practically salivating at the thought that he would be the one who finally pinned down the legendary Howard Marks, who had openly mocked the justice system for so long. Lovato couldn't act just yet, though. The DEA and their international partners wanted to maximize the arrests, and that meant choreographing the apprehension of Howard's associates worldwide. It took time to get all those sting operations set up, if any one of them acted too soon, the entire gambit would be compromised. Of course, things went wrong. In February 1988, an informant told the DEA there was a contract out on Tony's life. Someone had found out that Tony was working with the DEA. If Tony was killed, their case would dissolve. Tony and his wife were placed under DEA protection in Miami, which meant they were housed in a mediocre hotel under a false name. Lovato and his wife entertained Tony often at their own house. Then Lovato was hit with another setback. One of Howard's business associates tipped him off about an incoming indictment from the DEA. Howard immediately got on a plane to Taiwan a country that doesn't have an extradition treaty with the United States. Lovato panicked. After years of work and painstaking coordination, he'd lost control of Howard. If he was going to lure him back, he needed to convince Howard that the investigation was over. Lovato tracked down two witnesses he'd been planning to use in Howard's trial and told them the indictment was off. 
Lovato suspected these witnesses were the ones who had tipped off Howard about the indictment. Hopefully, they would also feed him this false piece of information. While Lovato waited for his gamble to pay off, he whittled his team down to a skeleton crew and took their work underground, leaving no paper trail. Lovato insisted that they only work at the Miami DEA office at night. But overseas, Howard was becoming increasingly paranoid. Ernie Combs, Howard's California contact, had been arrested by the DEA in 1986. Because Howard had protected Ernie in the past, he wasn't concerned about Ernie flipping on him. But then in April 1988, Howard learned that Ernie's charges had been mysteriously vacated and the court records sealed. It looked like Ernie wasn't returning the favor. But at almost the same time, word got back to Howard that the investigation appeared to be stalled. The mixed signals drove him crazy. He was anxious to reunite with Judy and their daughters in Spain, but he couldn't go back until it was safe. Eventually, Howard's lawyer reached out to Bobby O'Neill, the prosecutor handling Howard's case. O'Neill was surprised to receive the call, but reassured him that Ernie Combs' testimony wouldn't be enough to indict Howard. In the U.S., the word of a drug dealer was not very convincing to a jury. On the strength of O'Neill's word, Howard flew back to Spain, believing he was safe. Lovato was overjoyed when he found out Howard was in his grasp again. On July 13, 1988, Lovato presented the summary of his two-and-a-half-year investigation into Howard Marks to a grand jury. They granted him an indictment. On July 21, 1988, Lovato posted up in a building next to Howard's Spanish villa. The best vantage point he could get only gave him a view of one side of Howard's second floor. Lovato could hear voices and children playing in the pool, but he wasn't sure if Howard was home. Lovato had a huge team of plainclothes police at the ready in the plaza nearby, but he made them wait. He didn't want to enter the house until he was sure Howard was there. If they blew their cover too early, Howard could go on the run like he did in 1973. This was their one shot, and he wasn't going to blow it. At 9 p.m., the local police were ready to call it a night. Lovato had no intention of calling off his vigil, but the officers had been waiting all day in the heat. Their chief sent them home. Moments after the police departed, Howard's gray Ford Sierra exited the gate of the villa. Lovato scrambled to follow, but by the time he reached his car, Howard was long gone. Lovato spent the night frantically searching the airports and scanning passenger manifests. There was no sign of Howard, but the timing of the departure had Lovato worried. Did Howard know about the sting the whole time? In reality, Howard had simply taken his family out to dinner at their favorite Indian restaurant. It was a lovely family outing. But on the drive home, their oldest daughter, nine-year-old Amber, was unsettled. She requested that her father drive home slowly. Howard was concerned. What was his little girl so afraid of? Something wasn't right. 
The next morning, the Spanish police were more agitated than ever. Even in plain clothes, their obvious presence in the usually sleepy town square was starting to raise alarm. Lovato knew his cover would be blown sooner or later, but he had to know if Howard was home. It was time for a Hail Mary. He picked up the phone. He dialed Howard's home number. A very familiar Welsh voice answered. Lovato immediately handed the phone to a local cop who mumbled unintelligibly in a local accent. Howard grumbled about a wrong number and hung up. Howard was home. Their only remaining obstacle was getting through the iron gates around the property. They could smash the gate open with a battering ram, but that would give Howard a heads up and time to destroy any evidence. Lovato and a few policemen posted up in the alley outside the gates. Howard had already opened the gates once that morning to grant entrance to his tennis partner, David Embley. Sooner or later, the gates would have to open again when Embley left. The police had just barely assembled when the gates opened, and out walked Embley. The policeman immediately took him in and began to question him. In the confusion, one of the Spanish police officers pushed the doorbell. The gate swung open. Lovato and another policeman slipped inside. There to greet them with a smile in the courtyard was Howard Marks. With the rest of the police out of his line of sight, Howard only saw what looked like two normal Spaniards. He thought they were there to ask for work trimming his palm trees. But then the policeman pulled a gun and stuck the barrel right into Howard's stomach. Howard put his hands in the air. The thought flashed through his mind, I'm going to prison for the next 20 years. Behind him, his youngest daughter Francesca came out of the house and saw her father at gunpoint. Lovato slipped past her into the house and opened the gate, letting his team of Spanish police into the house. Judy was awoken in her bed by strange Spaniards. They handcuffed her and told her she was under arrest, but she couldn't understand them. Nine-year-old Amber translated for her through tears and asked her mother why she was under arrest. When Judy realized what was going on, she got angry. She shouted at Lovato, who do you Americans think you are, world policemen? Howard was despondent. He'd imagined his arrest for so long, but this was the worst way for it to happen. He'd never wanted his wife and children to be subjected to this. Howard was locked up at local police headquarters. Hours later, when he was escorted out of his cell to the bathroom, he saw Judy in another cell. His heart felt like it was dissolving. If Howard's 1980 trial was a glorious spectacle, this one was anything but. It was a long, slow bloodletting. Howard's first priority was getting Judy back to the children. Because the home phone line was registered in Judy's name, the DEA charged her with furthering a racketeering enterprise. It took over six months in extradition to Florida, but in early 1989, Judy admitted to the felony and was let off with time served. Howard's trial began in July of 1980. In October, he was convicted of two racketeering charges, 
Howard would serve his 10 and 15 year sentences concurrently, so he would only spend 15 years in prison and pay a $50,000 fine. Howard was elated. He'd been prepared to receive a 40 year sentence. But Howard had only just settled into the holding cell when he was brought before the judge again. The judge admitted he had misspoken during the sentencing. Howard wouldn't serve his 10 and 15 year sentences concurrently. He would serve them consecutively. His sentence had just increased by 10 years. Howard was sent to the Federal Correctional Complex in Terre Haute, Indiana, known by many as the Terror Hut. It housed some of America's most violent criminals, many serving life sentences. During his first meal, Howard witnessed a prison execution. He was originally assigned to a less rough penitentiary, but Lovato requested he be reassigned to somewhere harsher. But just like he always did, Howard quickly found his footing. He realized he could shorten his sentence by getting a job, so he volunteered to teach English and help other prisoners get their GED. At first, he was intimidated by his students. Many of them were serving life sentences. But once he gained their trust, he found the work extremely rewarding. Later, he would say that his time in the classroom was the most enjoyable time he spent behind bars. Described as a model prisoner to the parole board, he was granted his freedom in 1995 after serving only seven years, including time served while awaiting trial. A year later, he published an international best-selling autobiography called Mr. Nice. Howard's most persistent legacy is his fight for cannabis legalization. He ran for election to the UK Parliament in 1997 and based his entire platform around legalization. He didn't win the seat, but the awareness his campaign raised led to the formation of the lobby group Cannabis Law Reform. Howard remained a beloved figure in British pop culture and in the legalization movement until his death from colorectal cancer in 2016. Beyond any doubt, Howard Marks was a criminal. But unlike many kingpins we've covered on this show, he didn't have to kill his way to the top. His polite behavior got him farther than anyone could have imagined. Howard's success can teach a valuable lesson. Even in an underworld filled with violence and bloodshed, the most powerful weapon is a smile. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. 
Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler with sound design by Russell Nash. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Kingpins was written by Hannah McIntosh and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett.